racism behind those inequalities, rather that the inequalities on their own don't prove that. So it's possible there is racism which contributes to those inequalities. I I would actually say that's probable. The question is, to what degree does racism cause those inequalities? And to what degree are there other causes of those inequalities? Okay? So uh, don't misunderstand anything I've said as a denial of the possibility of racism being part of the problem. That's not at all what we're saying. Merely that inequalities by themselves do not prove injustice. And that's what most of our society today seems to assume. Okay, now, uh, this, is, this is for fun. Um, I want to I deal with what I believe. I'm almost ready to say it. I'm not quite ready to say it, but I, I'm going to try it anyway. I want to claim that there is systemic racism in this country, and it comes in the form of minimum wages. I think I'm right but I haven't done all of the math. There is systemic racism in this country, and it is in the form of minimum wage laws. How many of you find that very surprising or even confusing? Yes, 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 yes. I'm assuming most of you that's going to be surprising. I actually, I think I'm... I'm convinced. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm going to explain why, and I'm going to explain what I mean. Uh, before I do that, I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, I'm going to give you three authors that we haven't mentioned that I've found very helpful in a bunch of these related issues. Uh, economics, race, inequality, justice. Uh, very helpful. Very different And I am not in any way saying all of these books are great and we agree with everything or anything like that, but they're helpful. Uh, The first author is Jason L. Riley. Uh, uh, He is a Wall Street Journal columnist, and I found his writing very helpful. Um, He wrote a book called False Black Power, uh, and I haven't finished this one. The the first one I read of his was called Please Stop Helping Us. That's the name of it. Please stop helping us. Jason Riley. Uh, second one you've probably heard of, uh, Shelby Steele wrote a book called White Guilt. How blacks and whites together destroyed the promise of the civil rights era. He has a more historical perspective because he went through a lot of it. Um, and what w- w- I thought we fixed this 55 years ago. Why is it worse now than it was back then? Uh, helpful. And then this is the one that I'm going to deal with first. Oh, this guy's awesome. Walter E. Williams. Walter E. Williams. Um, he, <laughs> I love, yeah, I just, I love his way of thinking. He is a sharpshooter, a straight shooter. That is, he, he does not pull punches. Um, he is a professor at George Mason University, an economics professor. This book is called Race and Economics. Race and Economics. Let me read a uh, quote from him. 
The thrust of the argument in the chapters that follow is that most, the most difficult problems black Americans face, particularly those who are poor, cannot adequately be explained by current racial discrimination. Instead, most problems are self-inflicted or, as will be the major focus of this book, a result of policies, regulations, and restrictions emanating from federal, state, and local governments. Okay? So that's the premise of his book. Excellent, absolutely fantastic uh, treatment uh, from an economics perspective and quite distinct from Thomas Sowell in multiple parts. Sowell's an economist and so obviously makes some economic arguments. Okay, so here's the fun. I, I'm going to come back to minimum wages and why I say they are an example of systemic racism. Okay, play a game. Um, how many of you like peaches? Okay. How many of you like kumquats? They're the tiny little citrus fruit, about that big. Mostly peel and seed, but there's a little bit of flesh. That's my experience anyway. Okay, so we got kumquats. None of you like kumquats. All of you like peaches. Okay, this is great. So we're going to play a little economics game. Okay, peaches, everybody likes Kumquats, nobody likes. Problem is, kumquats are on sale for 50 cents a pound, and peaches are on sale for $50 a pound. You walk into the store, you wanted some peaches, and there you see peaches, $50 a pound, and you say, you're out of your mind. That's like $8 a bite. Hey, what are these things called kumquats? They're 50 cents a pound. I can buy a lot of kumquats. How many of you would maybe consider trying out a kumquat if those were your only two options? Or you might just decide, I don't want any fruit, forget it. Okay, now, the peaches know that they are superior to the kumquats. They've done statistical studies. They know that everyone wants them, but they're priced really high. The peaches want to be purchased for $50 a pound. But they can't, while the silly kumquats are there, selling themselves for 50 cents a pound. How could they get purchased at the price they want? They advocate to the store manager, it's not good for kumquats to be purchased for 50 cents a pound. It's going to damage their sense of well-being, value. What we need to do is institute a new law that says you can't buy kumquats for 50 cents a pound. It's not fair to the kumquats. See, all fruit is equal. And if these poor kumquats go on getting paid the miserable rate of 50 cents a pound, they're going to eventually no longer care about themselves. It's not going to be healthy for them. We need to encourage them, make them feel worth more. So what we propose is that we have a fruit floor. That is a floor in the pricing for fruit. 
And what we're going to advocate is that fruit not be purchased for anything less than $30 a pound. Is a minimum wage. Now you go into the store and you see your peaches. $50 a pound. And you see your kumquats. $30 a pound. Now, how many of you want to buy kumquats? Now, $50 a pound is way too much for peaches. Drop it down to $5 a pound and $3.50 a pound. What are you going to do? You're going to buy the peaches. Because you know what a peach is, you like peaches already, and you're not sure about the kumquat. Now, this is, this is what happens with minimum wages. This is not really an argument among economists. That is not to say there are not economists who won't argue about it. This is a fairly settled and agreed on reality. 80% of economists are going to agree with this and the 20% who don't agree are going to have either major errors or some very strange worldviews. If you raise the minimum wage, you limit employment. There will not be as many people that businesses can hire and employ if you make the businesses pay too much for the workers. Okay? Now, what the liberal media is going to tell you is that all of this unemployment in the African-American community goes back to slavery and the Jim Crow laws and racism. Right? I don't need to defend that, do I? That's what you hear all the time. The problem is that does not add up at all historically. Because the unemployment rate for blacks was less than whites in the 19-teens. Less than. How is that possible? Was America less racist in 1920 than it is today? Well, I would argue, no, quite the opposite, because in 1920, it wasn't even taboo to be racist. It was assumed, and it wasn't just in the United States, it was virtually everywhere. And it wasn't until World War II, and the consequences or the results of uh, vicious racism, that we started to do some thinking about whether or not we had it right. Or, let me... uh, give you an example of South, South Africa. Probably, anyone want to disagree? Probably the most racist system ever created openly in the modern era. Apartheid. Legislated to the T, racism. Fully racist system. And yet, Although it was illegal to employ blacks in certain jobs, guess what you found? Whites, who openly said, we don't like blacks and we think they should be separated, even though they said that openly, were willing to employ them and secretly and illegally were employing them. Why would they do that? Because they're noble, non-racist people? No, they tell you they're racist. They believe the blacks 
in their society were inferior. Why then would they employ them? All about money. Because if the blacks were willing to work at a wage of, say, $3.50 a day, and the whites were required by law to get $5 a day, you do the math, who are you going to employ if they can do the same work? You're going to take the $3.50. So, what happens when we pass minimum wage laws in the United States? Uh, for the last, when was the first one? I think there was some examples in the 18, I want to say 1860, maybe late 1800s, but the federal ones started in the early 1900s. Minimum wage laws. What happens when you raise the minimum wage? You knock out the lowest workers. Why? Because if I am not as skilled at Jeremy and we both go to the store to apply for a job, and he has more experience, and he can get more done than I can. What is my one advantage against him? I will work for less. You get, yeah, he can do more work than I can. He can definitely do more. Well, this is hypothetical. <laughs> Let's say he can get twice as much work as I can. Well, then it makes sense for them to pay him $5 an hour and me $2.50 an hour. It would make sense for them to just have one employee for $5 an hour. He'll get just as much work done as I will at the rate of $2.50 an hour. So what's my tactic? I say, I'll work for $2 an hour. And now they look at that and say, well, same amount of work gets done, $4 or $5. What are you going to pay? Of course, you're going to take the $4. So what happens when you raise the minimum wage is that you knock out the ability of the less skilled, the less employable of the society. So what's happened to black unemployment rates over the last 55 years? They have, the unemployment rates have gone up way higher than ever before. But all through the 19-teens and even into the 20s, 1920s, the blacks were being employed. Their unemployment rate was lower than whites. Then the minimum wage gets raised. And then guess what happens? There's a disparity. The blacks have a higher unemployment. The whites have a lower. Why is that? Is it racism? It could be. There may very well be racism involved in the people hiring so-and-so. But what is the majority culture in the United States? It's white, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, by a lot. Uh, set, what is it, 73%, something like that? 77, 77%. At least that's self-identified whites. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. So what happens when a store wants to hire somebody to do a job and you have a black applicant and a white applicant, basically the same skills. Is it racist to say, well, they're the same on paper. I can't tell the difference. I have nothing to base my decision on other than my own preference. They're equal in every way that I can tell. Who are you going to pick? Someone you're familiar with? Or someone you're not familiar with. 
That's the advantage of being the majority in, in a culture. We're more comfortable with people that are like us. It's not black and white. The same exact thing happens with the Irish. The same exact thing happens with the Germans, with the Jews. Guess what the Jews wanted to do when the Eastern European Jews came in? They didn't want those Eastern European Jews in here because they weren't like us. What are we comfortable with? People that are like us. And so as a majority culture, what's going to naturally happen if there's two equal candidates? More likely or more often, the majority is going to be chosen because they're familiar to the employees. Okay, now, uh, let, me, let me give uh, William some more credit. Here's what he says. Uh, during South Africa's apartheid era, white workers supported wage regulations. White unionists argued that in absence of statutory minimum wages, employers found it profitable to supplant highly trained and usually highly paid Europeans by less efficient but cheaper non-whites. That's a long sentence, but what he is saying is the unions who were openly racist, the union said, we need minimum wages to keep us highly skilled people paid at the highly paid rates we want. Right-wing white unions in the building trades have complained to the South African government that laws reserving skilled job for whites have broken and should be abandoned in favor of the laws we have forbidding blacks from working in these jobs so that we whites can keep the jobs. The laws are getting broken. They're not working. What's your solution? This is so insidious. Oh my goodness. The unions say we need to abandon those laws in favor of equal pay for equal work laws. By instituting a minimum wage law, we will effectively be able to remove the black workers from our competition. Unbelievable. Absolutely breathtaking. Now, I haven't finished all of William's book, but he at least hints that this is not coincidence. One must always remember that the state, uh, that the effects of a policy are by no means necessarily determined by its intentions. Just because you want, you have an intention for it to do something, that doesn't mean what it is. But a good case can be made that the effects of the minimum wage law are its intentions. What is the effect of the minimum wage law? Increasing black unemployment. That is the effect. It's virtually unarguable. That's the effect of the minimum wage law. And what he's saying is, that's probably what the intention was all along. And there is evidence to suggest early on that the white 
only unions in early 1900s knew that, and that's why they advocated the minimum wage laws. Okay. Questions on the minimum wage law? Yes, Jeremy. No, you don't get a mic. Okay, you can have a mic. No, it's not even a question. I just wanted to. I I just wanted oh, yeah. to, I just wanted to add. Another way of saying what Daniel's saying is when you raise the price, the least desirable employees, those with the least skill, the least experience, those who are going to have the most difficult time, immediately get priced out because their only possible selling point is I'll do it for less. So the second you raise the price, the people who most need work, who most need job experience, who most need to get skills are precisely the people who are going to be penalized the most. Um, and that's generally in our culture going to be people of, of differing minority. It's the way the breakdown's working. And so it's going to hurt. These laws, whether they're racist, are unjust in the sense that they oppress and hurt and remove opportunities precisely for the people who need them most. Yep. And all done insidiously in the name of helping those very same people. That's yep. what's so pernicious about it. Now, whether or, not it's, whether or not it's systemic racism or systemic injustice... That, I think, is up for debate. I would say the minimum wage law is an example of systemic injustice. No question. Yeah, it's great for people who have jobs. <laughs> it's great for people who have jobs and will still get paid at the new rate. Right, right. Guess what happened? So why did this happen? Because this is not rocket science. Economists have known this for a long time. Long before the minimum wage laws were put into place, there were people screaming, don't do that. You're going to hurt the poor. Don't do it. So how did this happen? Well, uh, Princeton, right? Princeton study comes out and they say, we're going to show you, we, we think we have some contrary evidence. Maybe minimum wage laws don't increase unemployment. So guess what they did? These brilliant Princeton economists. I mean, this is, this is wickedness. It's either wickedness or gross incompetence, which results in wickedness. Guess what they do? They decide we're going to do, we're going to conduct a survey. So they conduct a survey of all of the businesses after the unemployment law is put into effect. Anyone see a problem with that? What happens when you raise the minimum wage job and your business required 50 minimum wage workers to, to, to make it uh, work in your, in your business? What happens when the minimum wage is increased by 25%? Your payroll just went up 25%. And if you're like a, a, a restaurant or something like that, that kind of lives on knife's edge as to whether or not you're going to be able to make it, what happens when you're cost of employment is 20% higher or 10 or 15% higher. You can't do it anymore and your business closes. So these brilliant Princeton economists went around and surveyed everyone and the people on the survey said, no, we've hired the same number of people as we had before. So they published this review, which William cites, Soul cites, as thoroughly discredited. It was absolutely a lie, but it gave Congress enough incentive to then go ahead and do it. And they passed the increase in the minimum wages, and now, all of a sudden, the, in, the disparity increases even more. Unbelievable. 
Yes, this is as stupid as saying, I've surveyed everyone who's ever played Russian roulette, and we have determined Russian roulette causes no deaths. Because everyone we asked didn't die. I mean, when you're a PhD at Princeton and that's the reasoning that you use, it makes me suspicious, okay? It makes me suspicious. All right, now, uh, any other questions on minimum wage? Okay, I want to give you one more thing. This is, I think this is really important because what you're going to hear, related to crime, okay? I gave you some of the statistics, 40%. In these statistics, those are... The examples I gave you are just like the easy ones. There's more complicated, more advanced ones, but those are typical arguments, okay? 40% of the prison population is black. 13% of the uh, U.S. population is black. Why the disparity? The assumption behind that is... 13% of the population is black. Therefore, 13% of the population of prison should be black. That's clearly the assumption, right? That's the reasoning. That ought to strike you as idiotic. The reason is we are not all the same. Different groups are almost always distinct. Uh, let's do it. Let, let me do this. What percentage of the U.S. population is female? Roughly 51%. 51% of the population is female. Therefore, following the same logic, 51% of the prisons should be inhabited by women. Otherwise, we have evidence that this is bias against men. Now, when we deal with statistics related to crime, what's the counter-argument that you're going to get? That's only because police are biased against blacks, and so they arrest more blacks. You heard that? Yeah. They get pulled over more. That was one of the other statistics. Here's how I, I like to think about getting pulled over. Would any of you cry foul if the National Football League... Were, have, uh, were to be found out as penalizing 70% of all penalties go against blacks. Would any of you cry foul to that? Why not? Because probably over 70% of the players are black. So it makes perfect sense that 70% of the fouls are against blacks. So the question in regards to who gets pulled over for speeding is... How many people are playing that game? If just hypothetically, 85% of the people who speed are white, then what would you expect? 85% of the people who get pulled over would be white. The problem is the studies we do have indicate that blacks like to speed more than whites. I don't know why. I don't know. I have no reason, you know, Greg? I have no idea. This guy likes to speed. (laughs) I have never been tempted to peel out and go as fast as I can down the road. I don't know why. 
It's not because I'm more righteous than someone else. It's just never appealed to me. Maybe I'm too scaredy pants and I don't want to get in an accident. But for whatever reason, there's more blacks playing the game of speeding. So is it surprising that more blacks are getting pulled over? No, it's not. But even that, well, the, the response is going to be, no, 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 no. That's because the police are racist. And if they pass, they, if they're sitting and watching people go by and it's a black motorist or a white motorist, they're more likely to pull over the black motorist, even if they're going the same speed. And there might be some truth to that. I think there, there, there may very well be some truth to that, but I think that's not necessarily racism. The fundamental question in when we deal with crime is, is someone, if someone commits a crime, then they should be punished. Do you agree with that basic statement? If they commit a crime, it is just that they be punished. Okay? I, I, I think we should all agree with that. And if someone doesn't commit a crime, it isn't just to punish them. Can we agree with that? Okay. So the question behind the black and white disparity in crime, prison, sentences, etc., is are blacks committing more crimes? But almost every response you get is going to say they only commit more crimes because the police go after them more often. So Sol helpfully says, it's pretty hard to hide bodies. The police, black or white, are going to have to deal with dead bodies. So what rate should we consider? We should consider the homicide rate. If we look at the homicide rate, it's pretty hard to hide a dead body and say, yeah, we're not going to deal with that dead person. Fair? So when we look at the black-white homicide rates over the last 18 years, 2000 to 2018, this comes from the FBI database. Okay? Real straightforward. You can go look it up online yourself. FBI database. Let me, let me start with this. The U.S. is 51% of, uh, 51% of the U.S. is women. What would you expect the homicide rate to be uh, uh, for women? How, what percentage of the homicides committed are by women? What would you guess? Well, the logic would be 51%. Oh, man. Women commit approximately 10% of homicides. 90% of the homicides committed in the United States are done by men. That should take your breath away a little bit. That is gross inequality. Men, you filthy homicidal maniacs. If, if men are committing far more homicides, what would you expect in terms of men's arrest rates for homicides? Should be way higher. How many people are playing the game of homicide? Men are playing the game much more, therefore men should be convicted much more often. Okay, now, I found that shocking. You know, only 3% of all homicides are women killing women. Only 3%. 62% of homicides are men killing men. 
oh, but there's no difference between male and female. Okay, blacks and whites. Uh, blacks killing whites, whites killing blacks, blacks killing blacks, and whites killing whites. Those are your four possibilities. Whites killing whites, whites killing blacks. Blacks killing blacks, blacks killing whites. According to this novel theory that everything should be equally dispersed, if 13% of the population is black, then 13% of the homicides should be committed by blacks. Right? Well, you'd obviously, well, you'd be very wrong. The percentage of homicides committed, oh, I'm sorry, one more thing. Based on news coverage, what would you assume is the highest rate? What is the one of those four that the media always wants to talk about? Whites killing blacks. That accounts for 3% of homicides. 3% of homicides are committed by whites against blacks. Blacks commit 8% of homicides against whites. Also very low. Whites commit 46% of homicides against whites. And blacks commit 43% of homicides against blacks. That means that 89% of all homicides are within the race. But what is all we're hearing about and talking about? Whites against blacks or blacks against whites? Well, we don't hear that much. But those are the only statistics that you hear about. Blacks account for 51% of all homicides committed. Yet, they account for only 13% of the population. What does that tell you? It tells you that having an arrest rate 40% higher for blacks is not out of, that does not sound crazy any longer, does it? And longer prison sentences, incarceration rates, arrest rates, etc. Well, that kind of makes more sense. But we're not allowed to ask that question. All right. Yes. Even if at that point you want to argue, and some do, that cultural systemic issues predispose certain communities to crime, even, even if you want to argue, well, the reason why this community is commuti- uh, committing more of the murders than another community is because of systemic pressures upon them. Even if you grant that, it lets the arresting police officers off the hook because they're at least ash- acting rationally and sanely. So you can, st- you can agree with that and still say, but I think the reason why this community is doing more crime than that community it has to do with systemic racism. But it does at least answer the arrest issue. Does that make sense? So... You could still, you, you could, there's more research that needs to be done. There's more diligent inquiry that needs to happen. It does explain the, the, much of the behavior of arresting police officers in, yeah. as regards to who they're arresting and who they're pulling over. Right. Okay, questions on that? Yes. Oh, uh, microphone will come to you. Do they have numbers for uh, the policemen who kill blacks? Was yes. that in that 
range or that number? Yes, and this is to to me this is just it's despicable the way that people talk about statistics and totally twist them to make it sound like whatever they want it to sound like. So the statistic I think was two and a half times more likely. The Washington Post post two cop, uh, cops. Blacks being killed by cops, two and a half times more likely than whites killed by cops. The implication, obviously, oh, cops are targeting blacks. And then when you actually look at the numbers, uh, Heather McDonald, I think, is the one who did this. Uh, MacDonald, by the way, two words. Uh, She looks at the data, and actually what it says is not that at all because they ignored how many blacks were armed and attacking the police, how many whites were armed and attacking the police, and so on and so forth. They completely ignored the issue of being armed and what they were doing before they got shot. So she she narrows it down. I think she looked at Ferguson, and she was like, there were basically three, like, three or four, I have some ridiculously low number of uh, blacks who were killed by cops that were unarmed. And two of those were unarmed, but grabbed the police officer's weapon. But they were still listed as unarmed. What is that? You're totally lying to me about the statistics. You, you go and look at them, and that totally paints a different story. Uh, so, yes, those numbers are available. I don't remember all of the details off my, the top of my head. Do you? And that would be out of approximately 6,000 homicides. But Now, here's, here's the hypocrisy that Jason Riley, uh, Shelby Steele, Thomas Sowell cry out against. You Black Lives Matter advocates claim that Black Lives Matter. The only Black Lives that seem to matter to you are the ones who are killed by white cops or whites. If you really cared about Black Lives Matter, then why don't you start crying out about the 2,600 black men who were killed by other black men? Those men matter too. And that's the hypocrisy of it. They're just, they want to put everything on, on its head. I mean, you hear about all the race tension and you just think like, I don't know, white, black, black, white, white, white. I think there'd be like 25% to each of them. And it's very clearly not the main issue. Blacks are killing blacks. Whites are killing whites far more than any interracial killings are going on. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It does. It's just you're grossly uh, making this imbalanced. You're looking at it in an unfair way. Yeah, Sue. Thank you. Um. Where did you say you were getting the statistics from? Uh, which ones? Uh, the the <laughs> homicide ones? The, yeah, no. The homicide yeah, statistics that I gave you come directly off of the FBI's website. Publicly available data. Uh, FBI publishes homicides. It, you, they're usually about a year and a half to two years behind because they have to, they don't always know at the time who did what and who was whom and all of that. They sort it out and they publish it roughly a year uh, later. So 2019 should be coming out soon. 
Yeah. Yeah, so this comes back to, I think, the fundamental issue in Christianity. Love your neighbor as yourself. The, the question is, what neighbors can you love? What access do you have to the poor, um, to those in ghettos? And maybe that should be a, a motive for us to move or live somewhere else or make different friends. But fundamentally, the person that I need to love, that we need to love, are the people in front of us. And I don't mean the people in this room. The people in front of us, the people that God brings across our paths. So we're going out to work. We got a job here in Des Moines. We got a job in Minnesota. We got a job wherever. Wherever you're going, the Lord brings you to those places. Love the people in front of you. Love them. Do what you can to bring them the gospel. Uh, and not just the gospel, but there's a real value in being able to, to work, uh, to learn discipline, um, the fear of the Lord. I mean, that's valuable uh, in, inherently. So I think, yes, we should be addressing this. But I think the only real way to make this change is on an individual level. Now, we may, as individuals, be able to appeal to our legislators to change laws, to to make a difference. The problem that I see is all the legislators want to do is add more laws to increase minimum wage, increase affirmative action, increase uh, or decrease housing costs, supposedly uh, rental rates and stuff like that. All of these social justice sort of policies has the opposite effect that they claim it's going to have. And so that's, I'm, I really hesitate to say get involved politically because so much of the damage that has come to our nation has been politically. So I'd be very careful. But yes, absolutely, write letters to your congressmen, senators, whoever you can to appeal. Uh, make a difference by meeting people in the, in the uh, inner city or in poorer areas, befriending them. Absolutely, do it. Uh, to whatever, I mean, whatever God puts on your heart. If it's not available to, say, Lois Tuttle, she's not going to be able to do that. That's not possible for her. Love the people that are in front of you, and that'll be different for every one of us. Okay. You want to say anything before I close? Let Let me say this and tell me if you'd agree. Daniel, one of the things Daniel's just done in this ABF is given counter, and I think very plausible counter explanations to the um, inequality of outcome, the statistics that were cited. And I, 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 I tend to agree with the direction where that's going. All that really matters, though, is the second you raise a valid or viable counter explanation now you have to do the real diligent inquiry to get to the bottom of it. So it's, I just want to make it clear. It's not as though listening to some counter statistics ought to equally persuade you the other way. 
Rather, the second you realize there's more than one way to explain the statistics. Now, biblically, do your diligent inquiry or suspend judgment. Say, I don't know. This is complicated. There's a lot of factors. There is no easy answer. So don't flip-flop the other way and say, okay, now I know what's the cause of these injustices. If you haven't done the diligent inquiry, if you haven't done the, the research, don't come to a conclusion. Would, do you want to speak? I mean, is that accurate? Or? Yes. Yeah, I don't intend to. Uh, I don't think that I have won the argument or proved the opposite. I've only tried to give you plausible, ev- plausible evidence against the prevailing notions. There, there, there may be another explanation, which means we need to have further discussion before we come to a conclusion. All right, let me pray. I'll remain up here if you have further questions. If you want to look at any statistics or books or whatever, I'd be happy to show you. Father, as we look at all of these um, political and economic financial issues, I pray that we would not get lost in them and lose sight of the gospel, lose sight of Christ, lose sight of true righteousness. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to walk daily before our God in righteousness and that our fear would be of you and not the society around us. But as the society seems to be crying for us to rise up with them, to join and raise their fists in anger at the system, I pray that you would help us to be distinct, that we would think carefully about the actual evidence, that we would be slow to condemn, that we would be full of mercy and grace toward those who disagree, toward those who are poor. May we not be arrogant and think that Because we're not poor, we must have done something better or more righteous. But instead, may we be compassionate and merciful as you are. Be humble, knowing that we did not earn uh, what standing we have, but you have been gracious to us. And I pray that we would demonstrate that character to our neighbors and to those we cross paths with. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.